And if anything, I think this president has been one of the best, if not the best president that minorities have seen, definitely in recent history. Oh, definitely. I agree with that. Hi, guys, and welcome back to the official House of Dimash podcast. With... The official House of Dimash <laughs> podcast. <laughs> with Ariel. And Zane here. And we hope you guys are having a fabulous week so far. And you guys had a fabulous, fabulous, fabulous 4th of July weekend. Definitely. This is our second podcast. Super excited. Super exciting. Um, especially considering the fact that we had no idea how the first one's going to go. We still don't know what we're doing. Yeah, we still don't know what we're doing <laughs> at all. But we have gotten so many positive feedback that it's been really, really uh, helpful yeah. for us. Yeah, yeah. So much positive feedback. We really appreciate all of your guys' comments. And I want to give a special shout out to Betsy Power. Thank you so much for your comment. It really, like really touch our hearts when we got that first comment in support of our podcast. We really love your philosophy regarding older doggies. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we can really relate and connect. And it was really great to just kind of connect on something outside of politics. Outside of politics. <laughs> yeah. So thank you, because that really touched our hearts. So today's podcast, we are going to do a follow up on what we ended on our last podcast with Miss Droplet's comments. Yes, definitely. And by the way, sorry, Miss Droplet, about butchering your name <laughs> last time. Sometimes when I get tired, I really tend to have a hard time enunciating. <laughs> English is my second language, and um, I was tired, so sorry about that. But your question was actually really, really good. Um, it really was. Thank you for that. Yeah, it's actually something that we get asked a lot, especially us being minorities ourselves. But you asked, when you hear you say that Trump has done a lot for this country and for minorities, please give me some idea of what the hell you're talking about. <laughs> uh, so that was really direct and very pointed, but it's a really, really great point you brought up. So we are going to get into it and discuss it today. But before we get into it, I just want to remind everybody to make sure and subscribe. If you haven't done so already, make sure to give this video a thumbs up, follow us, share us all over social media. It really helps like, our channel out. notification bell. Yeah. So unfortunately, or fortunately with the way that YouTube's algorithm works, it really does help us so much. And it really does make a difference when we do get a thumbs up. And uh, the other thing is specifically, uh, um, it really helps when people hit the notification bell for videos to show up in your timelines when you do go on uh, YouTube. So, and any feedback that you guys give us is super helpful as well. So, Ariel, let's get into it. Okay, definitely. So, the way that we decided to approach this specific topic was actually to break it up in two parts. And especially in light of the recent racial tension that our country is experiencing and going through, we thought it would be really appropriate to kind of break it down into part A and part B and part A specifically talk about what Trump and his presidency mean specifically for the black community in America and how some of his policies have affected the black community directly and indirectly. And then in our next episode, we wanted to talk about what Trump specifically did and how his policies have helped minorities in general in the United States. So one of the things that we decided to do is kind of figure out what minority even means in today's America. Yeah, I mean, minority can mean a whole bunch of different things. For us, we are gay. We yes. are drag queens. Jewish. Jewish. Also immigrants. Living in a blue state as 
conservative would be a minority. Definite minority (laughs) here. So there's a lot of different connotations and a lot of different meanings to what it means to be a minority. For example, women are considered a minority even though they make up a majority of the population in the U.S. Mm -hmm. A little over 50% of the population is women in the U.S., uh, but they're still a minority, and rightfully so. So, Ariel, I know we have a lot to get into today to unpack with this question, so let's get into it. I know you have a lot to say. Okay, so do you guys remember back in the day when Donald Trump was still a candidate during his 2016 campaign? He did a, a stop. I don't remember where it was, but he looked at the camera and he basically spoke to the community directly and he said, what the hell do you have to lose? And it's really a pointed question because at the time there really wasn't much that they had to lose, right? Especially since the Democratic Party pretty much has a monopoly over the black vote with well over 90% of their votes going to the Democratic Party. But also in terms of their lives, the lives of black Americans have not improved substantially under Democratic leadership. So that question was a really great question. And now that we're looking at almost four years later, we're realizing that his jobs and justice agenda has mainly focused on criminal justice reform, opportunity zones, uh, tremendous rule changes to the Department of Labor. And all of those things are going to have impacts in the lives of minorities and small business owners, which a lot of minorities tend to be. So you know, four years on, we actually have a record that we could look at and kind of see, you know, because now, oh, yeah, now I think the community definitely has something to lose. And we're just going to go over some of those things. Yeah. So if you guys remember back in February, um, which seems, (laughs) which seems (laughs) long, long time ago, so long ago, but if you remember back in February, Gallup polls show that nine in 10 Americans were satisfied with the way things were going in their personal life, which I think is absolutely huge. It definitely is. I mean, this is a new high in the four decade trend that Gallup has been measuring. So I think previously, the record high was recorded in 2003. And that was with 88%. So that's kind of amazing that um, 17 years on and right before the uh, pandemic, nine in 10 Americans are actually very, very satisfied with their lives. And nine in 10 Americans, that's 90% of all Americans, that includes minorities from all sectors of life, from all different backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And another thing that Gallup pointed to is they said that it is likely no coincidence that Americans' heightened satisfaction with their personal lives comes as confidence in the U.S. economy and their personal finances are also at long-term or record highs. I mean, that's just amazing. That's just absolutely amazing. 90%. Which it really, really is, right? 90%. And again, obviously, it includes everyone from whites to uh, minorities of all different backgrounds. And in general, there's a lot to really talk about and a lot to unpack here. Um, you know, from from Trump's administration passing the historic tax cuts to creating opportunity zones, cutting regulations, lowering unemployment to historically low levels, even renegotiating our terrible trade deals. He rebuilt our military. He managed our booming economy prior to the pandemic. And if anything, I think this president has been one of the best, if not the best president that minorities have seen, definitely in recent history. Oh, definitely. I agree with that. And I think, you know, there is so much to unpack there. Uh, But because we do want to speak specifically about the black community, we've decided to do it a little bit differently. So today we are going to focus on four specific examples, which are going to include prison reform, education reform, immigration reform, and White House initiative on HBC. Right. And because a lot of the things that we could bring up, we believe are kind of obvious, right? We could we could bring up the fact that uh, 
unemployment has been the lowest it's ever been under the Trump administration. And we could talk about a lot of other things that are obvious, but these are specific examples that will really point out to not only the positive impact that the president and his administration have had on lives, but also the the great danger of losing some of these benefits that this president is pushing for. Definitely. So first of all, we are going to get into the prison reform. We're going to talk about First Step Act in December 21st of 2018. Right. So the First Step Act basically allows prisoners who believe that they have received unfairly long sentences to have their sentences reviewed. This is a really big deal because since then, and this is statistics that I've read over a year ago, so I'm sure the numbers are much higher now. But since then, well over 3,000 prisoners have either been released early or are expecting early release. And this is really huge because according to the crimereport.org, which is a nonprofit multimedia information and networking resource based at John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York, they said that the United States Sentencing Commission, or USSC, reported that sentences were reduced by an average of 73 months. Wow, 73 months. That's incredible, especially given the fact that it's almost 30% of people original sentences. So thanks to these resentencing provisions allowed under this act, a lot of prisoners are actually being let out of prison 30% sooner than what they would have otherwise, or 73 months mm-hmm. sooner than what they would have otherwise. Now, the reason why this program works so well is because justice officials had to roll out a new risk and needs assessment system. And that system basically means that prison officials will now have to match inmates with recidivism programs that could help them shave time off of their sentences. And this is a program that was completely mandated by this law, by this act. So just to follow up on the number to bring some context to this conversation, following the enactment of this act, over a thousand inmates were released early within the first four months of this bill. It's important because 91% of the inmates whose sentences were short were actually black, and 98% were male. That means that the people who benefited the most from this act are, of course, men. So aside from just shortening some of the sentences for people who were in prison, this bill is also helping undo the damage of the previous administrations regarding criminal justice, including the mandated sentencing laws of the 1990s under the Clinton administration, such as the Three Strikes Law, and also some of the damage that was done under the previous Obama administration that we'll get into a little bit later. But in essence, what this bill did is it shortened mandatory minimum sentences for nonviolent drug offenses, which is, by the way, legislation that Biden and other Democrats supported. Surprise, surprise. Surprise, surprise, right? (laughs) So all of these mandated prison sentences that were enacted were actually supported by Democrats and have helped put Americans in prison. And of course, that helped exacerbate the fatherless um, child issue that America is... crippled with. Yeah, absolutely crazy. So um, what this act uh, requires is for resentencing to be applied retroactively to individuals convicted of cocaine offenses before 2010. This is important because 2010, under the Obama administration, is when the federal government reduced disparities between crack and powder cocaine offenses, which is a great thing if, of course, you're being uh, charged with offenses. The problem was that this wasn't done retroactively. So you have all these, you know, mostly black people who were treated much harsher because they were dealing with as opposed to cocaine 
cocaine, which is a much more expensive drug yeah. that, of course, you know, white people are more likely to use. And now the Trump administration came out and said, you know what? It wasn't your fault that you've experienced the systemic racism within our judicial system. I will fix it. And he did. I think that's amazing. I mean, especially since a lot of people automatically judge Trump and saying that he's racist. And here he is going to the root of things and breaking down those systemically racist fundamental foundation within our judicial system. Exactly. Exactly. And it's a huge win for the criminal justice uh, reform advocates because they've long maintained that black community has been disproportionately targeted by an overzealous prison system, right? So now it turns out that the average age of those granted resentencing motions is 45 years old. Okay, the average original age at the sentencing is 32 years old. So these are black men who are essentially very young, 32 years old, and are giving life sentences in prison, 25-year minimums. And now instead of serving minimum 25 years, in most cases for the rest of their life in prison, they now have a chance to get out average age of 45 years old. I mean, this is their second chance at life. Literally. Literally. This is huge. Literally. Another interesting point to make is the New York University's Brennan Center for Justice said in its analysis uh, of the First Step Act that the federal mandatory minimum sentences were a catalyst for the recent surge of unnecessarily harsh prison sentences. As a result, the federal prison population has actually grown by over 700% since 1980. Wow, 700% since 1980. That's just... I mean, those are unbelievable numbers. Those are unbelievable numbers because that is... I mean, that's millions of people who are affected not only directly by going to prison, but indirectly. You know, what effect does this have on our economy? And what effect does this have on future generations, entire future generations in communities Mm -hmm. that, you know, have a big chunk of their population missing Mm -hmm. because they're in the prison system? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, talk about exacerbating poverty. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right? Now, given the fact that over two-thirds of the federal prisoners are serving a life sentence due to a conviction for a non-violent crime, this First Step Act will actually now replace a federal three-strikes rule, as we've mentioned before, which imposed a life sentence for three or more convictions with an automatic 25-year sentence. Mm. Now, again, these are... These are laws that were passed in the 90s, obviously under the Clinton administration. I think it's also worth noting that California, a very blue state, passed their version of the three strikes laws, um, which um, included nonviolent acts as well. So it wasn't just that you were giving three strikes if you committed some kind of a drug or a violent crime, but even nonviolent crimes, you would have three strikes and you're out. So if you committed three petty crimes because of your socioeconomic status, you know, bad education uh, due to where you live or whatever the reason is, Mm -hmm. you now have a second chance of life. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks to a Republican president. (laughs) Right? A Republican president and a Republican Senate. Yes. Might I add. Yes. So that's why this bill is so important. And that's why we're focusing on this today, specifically. You know, I think a few other things that are kind of worth noting is, you know, a lot of people are talking about the systemic racism of our criminal justice department and the racism of this administration. But the interesting part is that under then Attorney General Jeff Sessions, which the left hated up until he recused himself from (laughs) the uh, Russia investigation in which he became the left's darling and hero, he actually came out against the First Step Act while it was debated in Congress. Interesting. Right? And once he was removed, then Attorney General Bill Barr, who is now considered, you know, Trump's puppet slash, you know, 
ISIS number two, um, <laughs> once he was confirmed after the reform became law, he actually pledged to fully implement it. Wow. And he did. Yeah. So all of these numbers that we're saying are literally thanks to the implementation of Bill Barr, who has really followed this act down to the T, ensuring that people get their early release. Which I think is really important to point out, especially for people who are listening to us, who are Democrat, who are liberal, who think that Republicans are racist. So, you know, food for thought. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a great point, the food for thought, because it's so easy to just blankly point to people and call them a racist. But when you actually look at what they're doing, I think it really muddies the water and there you find a lot of gray area. Yeah, you know, like we said in our other videos, it doesn't really matter what people say, it's what people do. That's where you start looking at things and realizing where the truth lies. Exactly. And I think a good example would be look at Chicago, mm. right? Here's Obama's hometown, the town that he came from, Yeah. Um, the town that is run by people of his cabinet, Rahm Emanuel, the town that has been run by Democrats for years and years and years generations. and years, generations, and, you know, has seen horrible numbers pertaining to the black community in every aspect yeah. you could possibly imagine. Unfortunately. From, from homicides to income levels to educational disparity yeah. to everything you know and here you have the super liberal city where the black community has basically been left out to rot by the city officials who are all democrats over 60 percent of the requests for early release have been approved wow so here's a very Democrat, left-leaning, very progressive constituency that is enjoying 60% of early release, mm -hmm. that will affect thousands of people in the Chicago area, including yeah. a lot of very young children who are now going to be able to have their fathers be home. Yeah, I mean, that's going to drastically, dramatically change and shift a lot of things. From local culture to local opportunities. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, even Van Jones, Obama's special advisor for green jobs and uh, enterprise and innovation at the White House Council on Environmental Quality said that Jared Kushner, right? Can you imagine Van Jones <laughs> saying about Jared Kushner and Donald Trump? He said that they have brought together a coalition like he's never seen. Yeah. He's actually called it a modern day Christmas miracle. Wow. Okay, that's like a direct quote from Van Jones. Yeah. That's incredible. Wow, Ariel. I mean, there's really so much to talk about within the prison reform, especially since, you know, within the black community that they are so disproportionately imprisoned. Compared to their white counter. Parts. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I think when Trump was really pushing this agenda, he was really mainly talking directly to black Americans by saying, hey, this is mostly for you guys, because specifically blacks and Hispanics comprise more than 50% of the prison population, despite the fact that they're only 34% of the US population as a whole. Wow, that's just crazy. Th those are crazy numbers, yeah. right? Yeah. And so and we know that 70% of black children grow up fatherless, uh, yeah. or in fatherless homes. So this affects them directly more so than any other segment of our population in the U.S. And so this has been, I think, one of the pillars of his successes, mm -hmm. specifically pertaining to the black community in the U.S., because this is, I think, very personal and very, very directly affecting them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Which brings us to our next example, which is on education, education reform, which I find very interesting um, with the whole school vouchers. Uh, so let's get into that. Right. So uh, the school voucher program, that is essentially Trump's support for school choice. He believes that parents are more empowered when they're able to choose the schools that their children go to as opposed to being forced to sign their children up to 
schools based on where they live. Obviously, the, the system of where you sign up your child based on where you live disproportionately hurts people who live in poor communities. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, those tend to be black Americans much more so than white Americans. Yeah, because we all know education is one of the most fundamental, most important things that you can possibly have for a better future. And depending on where you live, those are going to be the schools. So if you live in a poor, uneducated area, your schools, the public school systems, are going to be more on the one and two ranking Ranking versus if you're in a more affluent area, even the public schools will be at a better ranking. Of a nine or a ten, exactly. And have higher chances to go to university. Exactly. And... I mean, I could speak to that from personal experience. You know, I didn't grow up with a lot of money, but because I lived in the Bay Area, I went to a school that was ranked as a 10, which is the highest ranking a school can have. And I've had multiple friends who came from a very low socioeconomic home, but as a result of the environment where they grew up and were able to get educated, they moved on and went to earning degrees from Ivy League universities, which in turn uh, allowed them to receive fantastic jobs, which in turn really, really allowed them to benefit their economic mobility and move on them up for success exactly and now they're supporting not only themselves but their children and of course their parents so by getting a really good education they've been able to come out of the uh, poverty life of the poverty circle uh, that much easier thanks to the school that they went to yeah so i think these vouchers are very very interesting yeah okay and the way that it works is basically like this so school choice is basically a voucher and tax incentive system that's aimed at allowing parents to choose the kind of education they want their children to have. Mm -hmm. Okay, now what does that mean? It means that parents can receive vouchers that allow parents to choose the school that best fits a child's religious, cultural, or racial background, and that will in turn allow the child to perform better in school, at home, and in his or her respective community. Wow. Right? Which I think is really important for parents, especially if religious, cultural things are important to them. Exactly, because school vouchers not only improve the education of a specific child using these vouchers, but it also improves the education in general terms by making public schools now have to compete with private schools for students in a free market. Mm. That's really big because school vouchers allow school districts to overcome racial and other segregations. Basically, they allow lower income parents to avoid sending a child to a bad school that is overwhelmed with gang violence or a school that lacks racial diversity. And a good example of that would be a study in Louisiana's uh, voucher program that found that the program actually reduced racial segregation, which is huge. I mean, that's really incredible, given the fact that the state has 34 school districts under federal desegregation orders. Wow, 34 schools. Not 34 schools, but 34 school districts. Under federal desegregation orders. Wow. So having a voucher system like this that is aiding states and districts overcome their um, racial segregationist history is, I think, fantastic. Yeah, and the fact that Trump is pushing and promoting the school choice just goes to show you that Trump really does care about all Americans, and he wants all Americans to have the most successful life as possible. And it comes down to these fundamental, foundational things that are really vital and important, like education. Right. And, I mean, just to be fair, you know, Republicans in general tend to be much more supportive of school choice than Democrats and progressives. So this is not something that Trump Trump is pushing on his own, but this is definitely an opinion that Trump is not only promoting, but is actually helping Republicans to make it happen. And again, it's important because a lot of the beneficiaries of school choice are people who happen to live in progressive strongholds, democratic-leaning places. And more specifically, it really does help 
black community. Because what Trump is saying, essentially, is that children deserve better. And these vouchers empower students to overcome racial and other disparities in their communities. But it also avoids the school-to-prison pipeline. Exactly. And exactly. that's really important because those that don't know, uh, school-to-prison pipeline, it's a phenomenon in which children of color are poorly educated, they're subjected to racist treatment, and they're treated like criminals in schools, often ruled by gangs. So as soon as they graduate or drop out of school, you know, whichever happens, uh, they then basically go straight to prison because they're already, they've infiltrated this, you know, life of crime and life of feeling like they're um, worse than, you know, their white counterparts and essentially feeling like the only hope that they have and the only way to care for themselves is by breaking the law, is by joining gang members. um, And the only way to deal with that is also by doing drugs. Yeah. And so, you know, when you pull children away from these from these schools and you put a child that is uh, at risk of becoming a gang member doing drugs and is subjected to a racist treatment and not just by the school district or school officials but also by their peers when you take that away and you put a child in a much more favorable environment the outcome of course also becomes much more favorable i know for example personally i know a lot of teachers who actually do teach within these poor communities and they come to a point where they just give up because these children are in this environment it's where so sad where they where they just feel like it's no matter what they do they're going to go from school to prison pipeline well because there's no hope there's literally no hope and the other thing that i've heard and this is more anecdotal evidence but one of the issues that i've heard with people who actually try to buck the trend and succeed they get bullied because now they're in a school that is majority minority and the majority of the students feel like they have no hope so the only real um, opportunity to make something of themselves is by following the criminal route. And they're looking at the students who are actually working hard at bettering themselves, studying hard, asking teachers questions, studying for the tests and getting better grades. And they bully them. Yeah. And so, you know, these kids, not only are they not getting the treatment that they need from school officials, mm-hmm. but they're now being mistreated by their own peers and you know, really making them ashamed of trying to become successful. Trying to better themselves. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's especially evident in the Washington, D.C. area with their voucher program, because that is the only federally funded school voucher program in the country. And so because it is the only federally funded program in the country, a study was done. And basically what it found is that students' graduation rates increased by 21% overall. Wow. 21%. I mean, that's huge. Two out of 10 students who, and, you know, and up graduating versus not graduating. Yeah. Who end up potentially moving forward and getting a good paying job versus, you know, working at a minimum wage job or worse. No job at all. Exactly. Yeah. And, um, you know, 21% is a lot. But if you think about it even more so, 28% of female voucher students were more likely to graduate. So now you're looking at three out of 10 women. Mm -hmm. And if there's one thing that we know from looking at third world countries and And in terms of their economic outputs and the greatest investment that you can make in communities in order to better themselves economically is really to invest in the women. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because study after study after study shows that when you give women specifically the power to succeed and the opportunities, uh, they not only take it and lift themselves up, but they follow up and lift the entire family up, including their children, extended family, and their spouses. So 
28% for female students is yeah. a massive number that is reforming uh, generations. Americans. You know, fundamentally, education is vital. And if you focus on education, it really can completely drastically change someone's life. Exactly. Because reading is what? A fundamental. Fundamental. <laughs> um, yeah. And it's also, I mean, it is worth noting also that children who use these vouchers and go to better schools, they themselves don't report any higher satisfaction with their better school than they did with, you know, their old school. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think that just kind of goes to show you that it's universal when it comes to kids. No one likes school. And it doesn't matter if your child goes to a great school or a bad school. Uh, kids don't like schools. Yeah. So, well, you know, <laughs> they don't report a, a higher satisfaction. Yeah. But their parents did. Yeah. And yeah. the parents of students who are voucher recipients reported much higher levels of satisfaction than their non-voucher recipient neighbors. They felt that their school was safer than their public school option, and they were much more likely to give their schools an A or a B grade compared to their non-voucher recipient uh, neighbors who would give their schools a failing grade. You know, this kind of reminds me of kids not liking school. It kind of reminds me of uh, the app in China. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you guys remember this? When the pandemic first hit, China, I think, was the first country to force um, schools, especially in the Wuhan district, yeah. to uh, study online. And Chinese kids, being as smart as they are, figured <laughs> out that if they rate the app that they're using as a one instead of a five, that they'll crash the app. It'll, they'll crash it. And that's exactly what happened. <laughs> and they want to have to go to school. <laughs> so they rated this app a one. And basically, because the app got such low ratings, yeah. the schools couldn't use the app for education. Kids just. Kids don't, like, yeah. kids don't like school. Surprise, surprise. It's universal. <laughs> okay, so you guys, there are a lot of pros on the education reform, but to be fair to the other side, we also want to address the cons on the school vouchers. So let's get into the cons. Yes, and there are quite a few cons, and obviously there's a lot of benefits to the school voucher program as well. We only mm -hmm. touched on a few of them. Yes. Uh, but before we go to the cons, I just want to also add one last thing, and that's that the uh, education nonprofit called Ed Choice stated that the empirical evidence shows, and this is a direct quote by them, uh, they stated that the empirical evidence shows that choice improves academic outcomes for participants and public schools and strengthens the shared civic values and practices essential to American democracy. Mm. And I think the reason why this is interesting is because it's a nonprofit uh, educational group that really looked at the numbers everywhere in all of the states that participate in this program, and basically they came up and said, that it really is almost unquestionable in terms of how much it helps. But again, just to be fair, we are going to touch on some of the cons because, as I said, this is a very divisive issue. Yeah. And conservatives tend to be for it. Yeah. Progressives and liberals tend to be against it. Yeah. And it's only fair that we'll explain why. Yeah, absolutely. And also, too, just out of curiosity, you know, I would love to know what your guys' thoughts are on it. If you guys are pro school vouchers or anti school vouchers. Yeah. And also, I mean, if any of you have actually used these vouchers, what was your experience oh, like? Yeah, yeah, that would be fascinating. Is this an know. easy experience? Did you have to go through a lot of red tape and regulations? Yeah. Um, you know, did some of you have negative mm -hmm. experiences with this program? Yeah. You know, and maybe your school was affected by it yeah. uh, because so many students left. Uh, you know, just tell us. Yeah, this is going to be an interesting topic. Yeah. Um, okay. 
So let's move on to cons. Yes. Okay. So some of the major cons or one of the major cons that I want to touch on is the fact that in the U.S., tax dollars are intended specifically for the betterment of secular education for all children, right? Right. So um, it's not intended for the private religious education of a few. And the problem with this is that of the 14 states that uh, have these school voucher programs, 11 of them allow the vouchers to be used at religious institutional schools. So what is happening essentially is a child that leaves a poor performing public school then goes to a private religious schools you know as you know a lot of private schools are usually usually religious catholic jewish muslim schools whatever you know but they're usually religious Mm -hmm. but now you're having you know these tax dollars that are following the students from a poor performing public school to a private school and the private school not only enjoys now public funding through taxes yeah right but they're also able to you know teach these children and, you know, their religious mm-hmm. beliefs. And the public school is, of course, losing their funding and it makes it that much harder to, to compete. Yeah, yeah, I, I can see that. That's, uh, that's an interesting point there. So that's 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 a really big point, especially, you know, giving our forefathers intent of separation of church and state. Mm-hmm. And when you're providing public funding to private institutions that are mainly focused on religion uh, teaching, even if that education is better, those funds are still used for something that our forefathers never intended those tax dollars to be used for. Yeah. And that's a very valid point. Yeah, it is. So that's one point. Another thing that detractors of the school choice talk about are the fact that school vouchers funnel money away from already struggling public schools and children and redistribute these tax dollars to private schools and middle-class children, Mm. right? So they're basically redistributing wealth from poor schools to rich schools, Mm-hmm. Um, and exacerbating these problems that way. And that's, you know, what we mentioned a little bit earlier. But basically, progressives believe that when you have a struggling educational system, one of the best ways to address that problem is by throwing money at the situation. Mm-hmm. If you offer more money, you would get better performing teachers, you would get better performing everyone else, and essentially the school would get better. Unfortunately, a lot of studies contradict this uh, notion, and it doesn't always work. Uh, but what we do know is that when you take away money, it really can exacerbate the situation even more. Mm-hmm. And so Democrats are saying, hey, you know, you're now taking money away from poor performing schools and making them even poor and even worse performing than they were before. Yeah. And Republicans are saying, hey, hold on a second. And conservatives are saying, hold on a second. It's true. But if they want to get this money, then they need to change from within. And they really need to structurally change what they're doing because it's not working. Yeah. And by just continuously giving them this money, not only are you not improving the situation, but you're not giving them any incentive to change or get better. So again, two sides to every coin, but that's another valid point. And another point is the fact that these school voucher programs fail to accommodate and support disabled and special needs students, right? Mm. And uh, I think that's actually something that's very unfortunate because unfortunately, private schools don't have to comply with the same requirements that public schools do. So just for examples, uh, a private school doesn't have to follow the Americans with Disabilities Act or the ADA, um, which requires things such as wheelchair ramps, um, note takers, you know, sign language interpreters, yeah, and other yeah. uh, helpful aids to people who need these this assistance. And um, in that sense, it really does discriminate a sect of the population who would not be able to enjoy 
these vouchers if they're experiencing any of these disabilities. And there's assuming there's no uh, school that they would be able to go to that would be able to accommodate their needs. And that, of course, essentially discriminates to a large sect of uh, a population that would probably need these vouchers the most. And uh, I would agree with this con, and I would think that that's really not enough. Um, I would hope that Congress, the Senate, and the President would work on making this school voucher program uh, more inclusive, specifically to special needs students. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Now, you know, I think the biggest con, and like I said, there are a lot of cons uh, when it comes to school choice, but there's also a lot of benefits and pros for school choice. So we are really concentrating just on the main points because they specifically pertain to a community the most. And one of the main cons that people often tout is the fact that school vouchers don't improve all of a student's academic performance. There are studies and multiple studies uh, done in multiple states that found strong and consistent evidence that school voucher students perform significantly worse in math and English than their public school peers. Hmm. And that's a really strong statement to make. And uh, those are really baffling studies because, you know, you're taking these students and we just talked about how it benefits them and, you know, moving them from a poor performing school into a better performing school. And now these same students who are supposed to enjoy the better performance of their schools are now performing worse than... They're struggling in math and English. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And there's multiple studies that show this, including in Louisiana, which is one of the states that we mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, But the caveat here is that it does not improve all of the students' academic performance. There's 14 states that allow this school value program. In the majority of these programs, students saw a very remarkable improvement. However, not everywhere. And so the question here is, should we cancel out a program or not expand it because it doesn't help everyone? Or should we look at the reasons why in specific geographical areas, this program doesn't work and look uh, surgically as to why it doesn't work and what can be done to improve this program for everyone else so that those students um, can catch up with students uh, in the voucher system elsewhere. Because the overall proof, despite having some programs that were not ideal in terms of their students' performance, the overall statistic and data show that most of the students do enjoy these benefits. Yeah. I think another kind of last point that I want to make here, too, is what I found uh, made uh, the biggest kind of inconsistency in terms of the benefits Mm -hmm. and the effects of this program is who are the people that are actually able to use this, right? Because this program is meant for all parents to have, you know, an equal opportunity to have school choice and be able to choose where they want to send their children. But it's also meant to specifically help lower performing communities such as the black community. Unfortunately, what happens is because of the socioeconomic differences and the overall cultural changes that black community members experience in our society versus members of the white community in our society, white parents are more likely to use this program, which is very sad because it's actually meant for struggling communities such as the black community. And I think the reason why white people are more likely to be able to use this program is because white people are more likely to trust government programs in general and authorities. And so they're much more likely to take advantage of these programs. And I think there's a huge disservice that's done to the black community by 
why they're progressive democratic leaders by not introducing them to this program or by badmouthing this program and essentially cutting their opportunities and cutting their ties to this program and not allowing them to take advantage even if they choose to do so. I also think that they're not even informed on this. I don't even think a lot of them even know about the school vouchers. They don't because this program is not promoted in these communities like it is promoted in middle class communities. And so now you have a lot of, you know, white folks who live in uh, middle class white communities who are now going to rich schools instead of having people of color who are living in poor communities and really struggling schools utilizing these opportunities to go to a much better school. If we just had the resources to make this program more known, well known among this segment of the population, I think more people would actually enjoy the benefits of this program. Yeah, yeah. So you guys, I really think this is really amazing what Trump has done for the education system, you know, very fascinating with the school vouchers. Like I said earlier before, very curious to know what your guys' thoughts are on this. Um, But I think it's really amazing that Trump is actually trying to do something with the education system and especially aiming towards the black community, um, really helping them with their foundation within education. And another thing that he also is proposing is Trump's Education Freedom Scholarship Proposal. Trump's reforms are really aimed at specifically helping, obviously everyone, but specifically helping people of color. And under the president's EFS proposal, taxpayers could make voluntary contributions to scholarship granting organizations, which would be identified and approved by the respective states, right? So what that means is that those who choose to actually contribute money would receive a non-refundable dollar-for-dollar tax credit. What makes this different is that these organizations would give out scholarships to students that could be used for a wide variety of educational opportunities, Mm. okay? And um, what makes this so different and specifically is aimed at serving underachieving and underperforming communities, which again, a large proportion of these communities are people of color, is the fact that this program allows states to decide whether to participate, but also how to select eligible students, education providers, and allowable educational expenses instead of a traditional top-down federal program. So instead of our federal government telling states what they should be doing with this money, the states actually have the power to allocate their resources in a more or local level. Yeah, well, I think that's really important because Trump is actually giving the states the power. You know, people complain about like the trickle down right, economy. Right, trickle down economics and how, you know, things don't, uh, you know, tr- trickle down doesn't work, right? Things usually filter upwards, but not downwards. Well, this is a really great example of, you know, how Trump is directly serving these um you know, these, these communities, communities yeah. Yeah, that needs this help the most. Well, Ariel, I mean, there's so much that we could talk about within the education. <laughs> education reform has so many facets, and it's really a fascinating uh, a fascinating topic in how it affects American society in large. It, it really does. Um, you know, we, I mean, we could talk about it forever. But uh, let's move on to our third point, which is immigration reform. Right. Or more specifically, illegal immigration reform. Yeah, because there's definitely a difference between immigration reform and, and illegal, illegal immigration, illegal reform. Re- right. immigration reform. And again, we know, obviously, uh, this is another hot button issue that both sides of the aisle have really hardened their stances on uh, yeah. and worldview when it comes to specifically illegal immigration. Yeah. But I think a different perspective would really help when it comes to looking at illegal immigration 
immigration reform. I think a really good source on this topic would be Peter Kirsanov. And um, the reason why he's a good source on this topic is because he's a longtime member of the U.S. Civil Rights Commission. Mm -hmm. And um, he said, and again, I found this is a direct quote from him. He said that the one demographic in the United States of America most harmed, palpably harmed by illegal immigration are black Americans and politicians open border politicians know this. They know because there have been numerous hearings before Congress on this very issue. Mm. Now, this is really, really important, right? Because he's essentially arguing what many conservatives argue, and that is that this is another example of Democrats just trying to keep the black community on the plantation yeah. by exacerbating the issue of illegal immigration and not allowing immigration reform to move forward and proceed And when it comes to our open borders. Now, he presented evidence and data that shows the pernicious effects of illegal immigration and open border has had on black Americans in terms of employment. Yeah. Um, and these numbers, you guys, uh, there's... They're staggering. I mean, really, really staggering. Nearly 1 million fewer blacks work today because of the competition from illegal immigrants than otherwise would be the case if we had a secure border. Professor Briggs testified before the Civil Rights Commission. We had a whole host of people testifying before the Civil Rights Commission. The one cohort, the one demographic in the United States of America most harmed, most palpably harmed by illegal immigration are black Americans. And politicians, open borders politicians know this. They know this because there have been numerous hearings before Congress on this. I've testified in a number of these hearings. George Borjas has testified in a number of these hearings. Uh, Stephen Cameron has testified and we've presented all of this evidence, all of this data that the pernicious effect of illegal immigration of open borders has had on black Americans in terms of uh, employment. Nearly one million fewer blacks work today because of competition from illegal immigration than otherwise would be the case if we had a secure border. And it also depresses wage rates by a tune of $1,800 a year. George Borjas estimates that the depressive effect of illegal immigration on wages is anywhere from $99 billion to $118 billion dollars annually cumulatively but it has the most significant effect on the black community and you know uh, if there are any liberals or democrats progressives that are listening to us right now probably would argue against this statistic here right or what they would argue is you know they, what they would argue is the fact that illegal immigrants you know help the american ego uh, economy through various you know studies as well and obviously there's you know studies and data that sh you know could pretty much show and support any point of view that anyone is holding for the most part so we get it obviously but some things are very difficult to argue with and that is the fact that when you have large number of illegal immigrants who are coming to the country illegally crossing the border and because they're illegal they're also so working under the table, um, they are receiving much lower wages than what an American citizen would expect to receive. Now, there are points that argue that we allowed open borders, no one would be an illegal, and therefore wages would go up as well. Some argue that that would depress wages even more so, yeah. uh, especially given the fact that illegal immigrants that are here now and our open border um, disaster that the U.S. is experiencing now depresses wages by a tune of $1,800 a year. Mm. And again, these are are, you know, not numbers that I just pulled out of anywhere. These are numbers that were presented to Congress by the U.S. Civil Rights Commission. So, and this is a nonpartisan commission. These are not Republicans or conservatives who are arguing these points. It's just points that we would normally not hear in mainstream, uh, in mainstream media. media, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And it's important because, you know, some of the estimates out there, and these are conservative estimates, that estimate the depressive effects of illegal immigration on wages range anywhere from $99 billion to $100 18 billion dollars annually. I mean, 
annually. No, I just can't believe those numbers. $99 billion to $118 billion, billion dollars annually. annually. Now, wow. Yeah. Now, granted, these numbers, um, you know, these are cumulative numbers. Right. Okay. In the sense that, um, you know, they depress wages, not just for black America, but Americans in general, all Americans, mm-hmm. right? And that, of course, includes Hispanics and women and whites and um, everyone. Everyone. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So, you know, these are cumulative numbers. But again, since illegal immigration disproportionately affects black Americans in terms of their ability to receive employment, because they're fighting for pretty much the same jobs uh, very often as the jobs that illegal immigrants hold, this really affects them disproportionately. And I would argue that a large number of this hundred and, you know, almost $20 billion mm-hmm. uh, is mostly, you know, taken away from black people and from their paychecks. That's a really bold statement to say that $118 billion is being taken away from black communities. Well, not from black communities directly. But what I would argue is that a large portion, a disproportionate portion of this $118 billion is, you know, really directly being taken away from black families. And essentially, this policy of open borders would be equal to, you know, reaching out and, you know, grabbing, you know, someone's wallet and literally taking out money from their wallet because they are not able to either compete with the jobs that are being offered to illegal immigrants uh, for the wages that they're being offered for, or these jobs are just not even available in the first place. I can totally, totally see why black conservatives are arguing and saying that this keeps the black community on the plantation. Right, exactly. I mean, this is, I, you know, don't want to point fingers or anything, um, but I can see why Democrats really want to hold on to the black vote um, because it keeps them in power and control. Exactly, exactly. And I think it's also no coincidence that, you know, every four years we, we're constantly inundated with uh, w- with allegations of racism when it comes to a Republican running for, for office, right? Whether it was Ronald Reagan in the 80s, Bush, the father, and Bush the son. And of course, we remember, you know, McCain running for president. He was going to be Bush's third racist term. And he was called a great racist because he, before he was uh, called again a great hero when he uh, voted against uh, dismantling Obamacare. We remember Mitt Romney being accused of being a racist. And now once again, he's a hero for standing up to Trump. And of course, now Trump is the greatest racist of them all. How dare he? (laughs) And that is because his approval ratings among minorities in general has gone up, but also among African Americans, among black Americans, his approval ratings have reached recent highs that I think Republicans have not seen in many, many years before. Mm -hmm. Because he's actually, I think he's actually listening to them and hearing what they need and doing something about it. Right. Where you look at the Obama administration, you look at Biden. I mean, Biden has been in political office for how many years? Forever. Forever. And, you know, what has he done? Biden has been in office forever and a day. And basically, he's actually done a lot. He's really done a lot, including supporting segregated bus rides to schools, including the three uh, strikes law and um, mandatory sentences that put millions of black community members in prisons uh, with no hope. There's actually a lot to be argued regarding what Biden did for the black community and how it has harmed them. And not just Biden, but Democrats in general. Yeah. And that's probably the main reason why most people in the media and most Democrats don't like to focus on what people actually do in terms of what they've accomplished for 
Black America, and they prefer to focus specifically on the words and um, oh, what they're promising and the, and the promises, <laughs> the right. empty promises, which really takes a lot of things out of context. Yeah, it really does take a lot of things out of context because um, Trump doesn't really pander to no. uh, any community, any community, really. No, no, uh, you're American. He looks at everybody as American, and that's it. Exactly, it's, that's it. And he really talks. Uh, you know, he talks to people at eye level. He talks to them directly, and like I said, what. The the hell do you guys have to lose he really meant it because what he's doing is he's really going down the list and going one by one looking at what are the fastest changes that we can make to our society today that it will impact specific segments of our population the most yeah and, and not just now here and now but it's also going to have a direct impact on generations exactly Exactly. And this is why we chose these specific four examples as to how they impacted the community in America in positive ways. Yeah, yeah. Well, you guys, let's move on to our fourth example. Um, but before we get into it, I just want to take a moment here and I just want to thank everybody for all of your support. Mm, absolutely. Especially on this new journey of our podcast. Yes. As you guys know, um, we cannot come out with uh, drag videos um, all the time. So we as thought often this, as we'd like. Yeah. yeah. So we thought this would be the best way to come out with videos would be through podcasts. And just have an open dialogue with you guys. And I also want to thank everybody who also has joined the House of Dimash family from my walk away video. Um, appreciate all of your support. I did do a follow up walk away video over on my channel about seven months ago, but people have been asking me to do an additional follow up video. So I don't know. We'll see. Maybe I'll do uh, another one. That'll be fun, just to kind of see and compare. Because, I mean, your walkaway video was a couple of years ago now. and Yeah, it was in 2018. Yeah. Wow, it's been a long time. <laughs> so it's kind of interesting to see, because some of the points that you spoke about really... Yeah. Um, are very much related to what's happening today, today's uh, space and time. So it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, and we also want to thank everybody who actually commented on our very first podcast. We want to give a special shout out to you guys. Definitely. Schrodinger's Gat, Betsy Power, we've mentioned you earlier, Miriam Gershenson, thank you, Anka820, Babe B, and Childless, uh, Melissa Morgan, Annie Garcia, Diane Aisha Monday, Kenneth Evans, thank you so much for your comment as well, Amy Joe. Andrezish men. Not sure if I said that correctly. Sorry <laughs> <laughs> about that. That pixie girl, antisocial media. Bonnie L, thank you. Lamb Chops, thank you very much. And, la and Lamb Yeah, and Lamb Chop, um, we actually get this question asked a lot. So this is definitely something that we will be discussing. Um, we do talk about like drag queen story hour, um, young drag queens, and a lot of our different interviews and stuff like that. But this is a question yeah. that we actually keep getting asked. So we definitely think we should probably address that again we do i guess we could do a full, we'll do um in one of our podcast episodes we'll address this question directly about and this is a really good pointed question you know about how we feel about letting young children be trans or encouraging them to transition from one sex to another before the age, age of 18. 18 yeah and it's a really interesting question uh it's completely different but also gets tied in a lot with other questions regarding young drag yeah um so you know we can really maybe do a full-on episode uh about that but if you're interested about hearing our opinions for now, before we do an episode, I think we discussed this slightly on our last interview with two yeah. classy gentlemen. Yeah, yeah. So 
go ahead, give it a listen, and, and let us know what you think and whether or not you agree. We also want to thank Lionel Brackman. Um, thank you. We will definitely keep him coming. Keep him coming. And uh, Stephanie Leitrick, Leitrick, thank you very much. And oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think uh, I mentioned you earlier, but uh, actually, we love reading all of your comments. Thank you so, so much for your you. support. It really means a lot, you know, when we read this. Uh, we might not be able to respond all the time. And like we said, we're not the best uh, social, social media. media. <laughs> but we read everything so many times. And, you know, when people comment like you do um, multiple times on multiple different videos, yeah. um, it really touches our heart. And yeah. um, it really motivates us to keep going. So. It really does. It's a huge motivator. Thank you for that. Thank you very, very much. I mean, we're kind of those like old school millennials, if you will. I mean, yeah. we, <laughs> we don't even like texting. We rather call. <laughs> yeah, we call each other when we need something. We don't We don't even text each other, um, uh, you know. And and then on Shabbat, I just turn off my phone. I don't even, I don't even have my phone on, on Shabbat. Yeah, we do. Uh, we, we, we're not religious, but we, we try to do what we call a digital Shabbat, where we get off our phones um, just on unplug, Friday sundown, sundown to Saturday sundown. Yeah. And yeah, we unplug, unwind. And, and just connect with our doggies and family and have and good nature, food. And, exactly. Yeah. And try to live more in uh, the real world and a little less <laughs> in the virtual world, which is becoming more and more real. So, yeah. And happy dog. I just have to say thank you so much for your comment. I just, I am like so flattered when people ask us to do their makeup because I don't know I think for me at least still struggling with makeup um, oh, there's improved always over time improve. yeah there's always room to improvement but I think saying your makeup is actually fabulous <laughs> thank you flatter flatter just we Leslie thank you very much as well uh, we hope God blesses you also and Charlotte Kaweni thank you very much too all of your comments I mean wow yes and really pointed feedback and yes, uh, yes. It, was, it was just wonderful to read and it makes us feel so good to know that we've lifted your spirits up and mm -hmm. made your day a little bit better and just made you happier now. And this is exactly what this is about. It's just creating a community of like-minded people who might not agree on everything, but are like-minded in terms of, you know, their belief of acceptance and love for one another. Mm -hmm. and, and free speech. And free speech. Yeah. And, you know, what you said in all of your comments really embody that. And mm -hmm. it really touched us and uh, it means a lot to us. Thank you. Definitely. And Giwon Kevin and Megan Taylor, thank you guys so much. LM Care, I mean, wow, we get this so much as well regarding uh, Christian Trump supporters who, mm -hmm. who are so supportive and open and welcoming and loving, and they embrace us with nothing but love. Yeah. And, um, you know, the mainstream media definitely paints um, Christians, especially conservative Christians, in a very negative light. So um, it is amazing to see so many conservative Christians coming out and supporting us and um, really shattering that mainstream media narrative. So true. Yeah. And not just online. I mean, we've noticed even when we go to, you know, we could go to rallies dressed up as uh, in drag yeah. and, you know, be met with open arms, loves, cheers, uh, you know, yeah, support. support. Yeah. Um, but if we try to go outside, you know, in San Francisco or Sacramento or any other liberal, you know, large city in America, in uh, California, if we try walking around wearing a mega hat, I think there would be a serious concern for our safety. Yeah. 
and no, unfortunately, um, it's just such a it's just such an unfair perception of mm-hmm. conservative Christians in today's media. It's really unfair because we have been met with nothing but love and acceptance. Thank you, thank you, guys. Thank you, everybody, for your support. And um, Ariel, time to move on to our next example, example number four: White House initiatives on HBCUs. Yes, definitely. And this is really our last kind of main example that we wanted to talk about specifically pertaining to Black America and Trump's support of Black America. There's a lot of different examples, but, you know, we just wanted to concentrate on four. Otherwise, this podcast would be, you know, 10 hours long. And <laughs> I'm sure everyone has a life to live and they don't want to listen to us talk for 10 hours. So, um But uh, President Trump has made fighting for historically black colleges and universities a major priority of his administration. Yeah. And just in one year, uh, his administration appropriated more money to HBCUs than any other president in American history. And that includes, of course, Obama. Barack Obama. Exactly. The first American president. And I mean, Trump has taken steps to establish the Presidential Board of Advisors on HBCUs, which is something that has been requested by black community leaders for some time now. Yeah. And thanks to Trump, now it's finally established. And what this bill does, the White House initiative on HBCUs, is it provides more than $250 million a year to the nation's historically black colleges and university, and along with other dozens of other institutions that serve large shares of our country's minority students. So Ariel, let's get into the breakdown of this. Let's actually talk about numbers. Right, okay, because the numbers are big, right? Especially historically big. And basically the bill authorizes $85 million a year for historically black colleges and universities. Uh, it also authorizes $100 million for Hispanic-serving institutions, $30 million for tribal schools, and $40 million for a variety of other minority-serving institutions. Mm. You know, that money is a lot, and it's especially staggering when you take into account the fact that the money is primarily meant to expand programs in science, technology, engineering, and math. So instead of already paying for existing programs or financing existing programs, this actually expands these programs. And this is huge because black community leaders were actually concerned about having to cut a lot of their programs because they are in such financial distress over the past few years. And they've been asking for increase in funding for years now. Mm -hmm. from previous administrations as well and have not received the necessary funding to be able to not only expend on the benefits that they offer to their communities, but they've actually had to cut down on some of these programs. So this really provides historically black colleges and universities with security for, you know, at least the next few years where they know for a fact that their programs are going to have the funding that they need, regardless of how the economy is doing, regardless of how many contributions they receive. Now they're guaranteed this funding that will allow people to expend these really important programs. Exactly, because this is really where the future lies within science, technology, engineering, and math. So it's very vital to have funding for those departments. Right. And not only is this where the future lies, but specifically when it comes to communities of color and black people specifically, they are behind more so than any other racial minority compared to their Caucasian counterparts when it comes to these specific programs. And we all know that in a world where technology advances so quickly, having these skills is so important. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, aside from just providing funding to these all-important programs and institutions, this bill also included simplifications for financial aid, such as FAFSA. Now, anyone who's ever applied for financial aid or help knows what the FAFSA applications are, and it is 
a strenuous yeah. application process. It's uh, not easy. <laughs> it's not easy. It's not simple. And basically, these simplifications make it easier on minorities to request and be approved for financial aid. And one of the ways that it does it is by not having to force the people applying to submit burdensome paperwork that is already submitted to the IRS. Which I think is absolutely amazing. It really simplifies it. It really does. And it's vital in saving time and cutting through the red tape that's specifically designed to help mostly minority groups, right? Yeah. And again, specifically people of color, because the FAFSA simplifications are estimated to save over $2.8 billion over a decade. That's just a that's, that's a lot that's of money. That's a lot of money, exactly. <laughs> that's a sh money. Um, and, you know, this money, this $2.8 billion, yeah. that is the money that's actually going to be used to provide the $255 million a year to these minority institutions. That's amazing. So not only is it saving money, but this is money that is now going to be redirected right. towards yeah. specifically Util utilizing the money people properly. of color. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Utilizing this money properly. And again, you know, We've, we've all been there, we've, you know, or many of us have been there and applied for, for these things. And studies show, and there's a lot of data that supports this, that Caucasians are more likely to follow through the application process. The application process. Except, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and they are more likely to have the resources to help them navigate through this really strenuous process. Mm -hmm. Whereas people of color just don't have the resources. Yeah, it's a lack of information. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. You know, and again, this is just one example of how Trump is making education more accessible to minorities in general, but more specifically to black Americans. And, you know, I think it's really important because if you look at the last, you know, let's say a few years, just from a historical context, from 2009 to 2015, basically, you know, during the recession, the height of it, and us, you know, coming out of the recession during the Obama years, the incomes of black Americans fell by more than $900 per family when you adjust that for inflation. Wow. Now that's a lot. I mean, $900 per family is obviously a lot of money. It may not be a lot to some people, but it is definitely a lot to other people. It's a lot of money for people who are living paycheck to paycheck, yeah, exactly. right? Exactly. And it's a lot of money who are struggling to, you know, fill up their gas tank, mm -hmm. you know, put food on the table, and obviously, you know, get an education and support their families, you know, whether through the need of, uh, you know, babysitting, childcare, you know, healthcare, whatever it is. That's, that's a lot of money for a lot of these people. And, you know, when you look at the numbers in terms terms of the employment, yes, maybe black employment has increased. Mm -hmm. But now, you know, to be able to buy the same amount of food or things that they used to, they now have to work that much more to be able to afford the same exact lifestyle. Yeah. Um, and that is, again, during years of growth under the Obama administration, yeah. uh, which a lot of Democrats, you know, tout as a success story. But if you look at it more closely, it is a success story, maybe to the upper echelon of society, but definitely not to those at the bottom that are impacted the most, like, you know, the black community of America. Yeah. The other thing I think that's really interesting to point out, and I think this is key to improving black lives in the future, is making sure that, you know, not only are they not dependent on the government, but that they have, you know, employment that they feel good about. Uh, and that has made a really big difference because up until the 
this pandemic took shape, the black unemployment rate was at historic lows, right? I think mm-hmm. we talked about this at the very beginning of this podcast, but the unemployment rates for black America went down as low as 5.5, 5.4%. And that's huge, obviously, you know, and again, some will argue, well, you know, the black unemployment rate has been dropping during the Obama years. But what makes this so different and so important is the fact that not only is their unemployment rate lower, and obviously the employment rates are higher, but their actual incomes are up since his election as well. And there is a very direct link between Trump's election and the rise in wages that Black Americans have experienced. That's just absolutely incredible. It is. And when you start diving deeper into these numbers and you start focusing more specifically on the rate of job growth, you realize that the rate of job growth per month for black Americans under the Trump administration has so far been 40% higher than the monthly average under Obama. Wow. Okay. That means that Trump averaged nearly 30,000 new black jobs per month. 30,000. 30,000. Okay. That's remarkable because when Obama was elected, employment was way, way down. Unemployment was way, way up. Yeah. So, you know, conversely, you would assume that, you know, the black unemployment rate would drop at a much higher rate than it has dropped under Trump's presidency, given the fact that, uh, you know, supposedly Trump was enjoying the great Obama that, you know, Obama has left him. Yeah. The quote unquote, quote unquote. Uh, yeah, quote yeah. unquote, great legacy. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. And so when you're looking at these things and you're realizing the incredible numbers that black Americans are experiencing in terms of their possibilities for employment in the US, I mean, you're seeing people who have been unemployed for years. I mean, yeah. they were officially considered Americans who are no longer looking for employment because they've been in the system for so, so, so long. And now you're having record numbers of people coming back into the fold of society society by contributing as working members of society and then of course enjoying the benefits of you know said contributed work by being able to spend their money you know in an honest way yeah and it gives a lot of people a new sense of respect for themselves too because so many of you know young children are now growing up in homes where you know their parents are, are working are employed yeah, yeah. which and, it, which will yet again i keep saying this will have effect on future generations exactly exactly and i mean these are again these are just like some of the things that we talked about and you know some yeah. of the statistics and there's like I said, so much more that we can discuss so much more than we could discuss and what we wanted to do is we wanted to talk specifically about these four points because yeah. we feel like everything else it has been more broadly discussed out there in the media right you know we all know that unemployment rate has been the lowest it's ever been up until the pandemic. We all know a lot of these numbers, but we don't know what they mean. And, you know, outside of, you know, the conversation of just numbers, you know, what specifically has been done to, to help people on a more, you know, local individual level. And yeah. I think real tangible, real tangible differences. And I yeah. think I think we were able to show that, you know, just these four examples. Yeah, we really hope that this podcast has helped you guys. Um, let us know if it is helpful. If you guys have any other further questions regarding these for examples of prison reform, education reform, illegal immigration reform, and White House initiatives on HBCUs. Yeah, and not just illegal immigration, immigration reform in general, right? Uh, Talking about guest worker visas, you know, uh, talking about really everything, just in terms of who gets to come into this country and how that affects uh, the U.S. as well, right? Our lottery, green card programs, right? right? Uh, All of these things really make a difference, and they make a difference more so on the weaker segment of the population, 
unfortunately tends to be the black community in this country. Yeah, yeah. Well, you guys, thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. Stay tuned for our next podcast, which we will follow up on the next topic. Absolutely. But before we go, if you guys, you know, if there's any examples that you wish we would have brought up or examples that you thought we didn't talk about enough, please let us know and tell us. Uh, Like we said, there's a lot of things, but if you think that something should have been on the list that wasn't, we would love to hear from you. Yes. Thank you so much. Absolutely. And until next time. Bye for now. Bye, you guys. Bye. (laughs) 